From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous episodes. On this week's episode, we'll hear from Buffalo Poet Laureate Jillian Hainsworth. Because we don't need any more thoughts and prayers. We don't need any more condolences, any more speeches. I don't want to hear any more politicians say, never again. This is the last time. How many times are you going to say that? How many last times can we have? So I, I, I do want to see more pressure from the media on the people that can answer these questions. Later on, Mark Talley, the son of May 14th shooting victim, Geraldine Talley, and the founder and director of Agents for Advocacy. No, I believe Nanette Massey said it, that you know the biggest thing we have to do is starts with education. And we definitely have to approve the education on the east side of Buffalo. We have it as of right now where just the, you know, the county controls everything. And I think it should be made where the, uh, where the district controls it. Finally, mental health advocate and host of WBFO's Mindful Music, Carl Shallowhorn. What I've learned through this experience is that our youth are hurting. Our kids are hurting. They're traumatized. Like... I certainly never could have imagined, and I'm sure you probably couldn't either. And, and it's just a matter of what they're being exposed to through all kinds of means. First off, on the day after the one-year mark of the Tops May 14th massacre, we were joined by Buffalo's first poet laureate, the always outspoken Jillian Hainsworth. The performing arts alum spoke about how the community is finding their way to the arts and notable creative works after that fateful day. She also provides us with some of her thoughts on what still needs to be addressed a year after the racially motivated attack that affected the east side of Buffalo. You may not even recall having this conversation. It happened on May 15th of last year. Um, you said to me, and I, I remember it very well because you were very definitive, you said, all of the art from Buffalo comes from the east side. Mm-hmm. And I've thought of it many times along the way over this last year, and I still haven't proven you wrong. Um, and more and more everywhere I turn, I find more of just that art. And just listening as best I could to this, this letter, are you seeing, can you judge in some way the sense that people are finding their way to literature, perhaps to writing to the arts, to try to express what's, what's going on inside that community? From my experience, yes. Going into schools over the last year, and I've had, I've done keynotes, and after my keynotes, I almost always have a Q&A. And I've had kids asking me, like, what what book should I read? Like, what, like, kids, high schoolers, like, what can I do? How can I become more aware? Um, the fact that people are leaning into literature is so impactful and so important because a lot of what's happening is not new you know what's happening in our community it's not new the strategies that we've created as a people to survive it they're not new um so really taking some time to dive into the thoughts of of writers who who are working on the front lines and who are going into schools and educating people about um being anti-racist and who's working with youth about how to be leaders and how to use your voice, how to identify your voice. Um, Being able to recommend books is powerful. But I've also had 
more and more students want to write. I've had students send me poetry about everything from cats to (laughs) May 14th, everywhere from second graders to college students just saying, I I need to figure out a way to express myself. So can you just read this and tell me what you think about it? Um, And I'm always so honored when when students come to me with their writing because I know how it was to be in high school. I didn't (laughs) want anybody's opinion on anything. Um, So (laughs) to be in in this position and to have students walk up to me at events and say, like, I heard you speak at my school and I heard you were going to be here, so I wanted to come and hear you or I wanted to come and, and get some books or where can I buy your book? Anytime like a student asks me where they can buy my book, I'm like, tell me tell me your address and I will send it to you. You don't have to buy it. I'll send you a copy because it's just like I know how much power is in opening a book. It's a new world. It's new perspectives and new ideas and new strategies, new art. So to be able to be a little piece of that for some of these students is everything to me. But I do see a lot more people leaning on the arts to cope, to understand, to heal, and to help other people understand how they feel. What books do you recommend? I'm curious. Um, of course, How to Be a Young Anti-Racist is an amazing book. Um, the, Hate, the Hate They Give by Angie Thomas is a book I always recommend. And, and that one's hard because you want the happy ending. And I'm not going to give a spoiler if anyone <laughs> didn't read it. Um, but it's, it's a powerful book. Um, I always recommend poetry books. I recommend... It's hard to find books by Celeste Tisdale, but I recommend Celeste Tisdale's writings and um, Lucille Clifton, writers from right here in this community. Um, there are so many new books that we're getting now. Mark Talley just had a book come out, um, The Day the Devil Came to Town. Yeah, May 14th, The Day the Devil Came to Town. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I recommend books by, by local authors and... Oh, I just have I have like a running list of books that I always just like pull out and I'm like, what are you interested in? Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna say this title right here, <laughs> and they're not all at the top of my head right now. Sure, but, sure, no. But... Um, I'll always follow up when I speak at conferences with a book list. I send it to the organizer. Like, here are some books for your teachers. Here are some books for your kids. Um, so we can move beyond diversity, equity, and inclusion to anti-racism and to really figuring out how to build a culture that works for everybody. Um, so, yeah, always always give book recommendations. How about for you? What were the books that had that kind of um, special meeting for you at a certain time or at certain times of your life? Because sometimes they're, they come to you when you're 12. Sometimes they come to you when you're maybe a little older than that. Yeah, I'm going to give two books, and they're very, very different books. I'm going to give The New Jim Crow. I read that book probably every two years, two, three years. Um just because it really helps me recenter my understanding of the way the system works and the way it impacts people who look like me and the way historically, like laws that were made a long time ago that we think don't apply anymore, the way they are still kind of written into our legislation and just kind of, it just regrounds me in understanding the purpose and the why and the work. And then on the other hand, there's a book by Issa Rae <laughs> And it's called The Diary of an Awkward Black Girl. And that book was very powerful for me when I first read it because I've always felt like the girl who is just a little bit different, you know, (laughs) the girl who would rather read a book than, you know, talk about boys as a kid. The girl who just always like when I was 
I was a kid and I wrote a story about the death penalty, like as a child. And it's very intense. Like it's a little too much for a kid, but (laughs) I have always been that way. So it just made me feel way more comfortable about being awkward and embracing who I am as a black girl and not feeling like I have to present myself a certain way. I know we're going know. back a few Let's years about back. the death. Let's we're go going back to the death penalty. But the uh, young girl writes about the death penalty. What was she writing? So the book was called Death to the Death Penalty. I was anti-death penalty from a very young age. <laughs> um, so did you, about, did you, from a young age, did you have an understanding of the racial implications of it? I did. Really? So it was about a, a black man who was given the death penalty and his daughter was trying to organize to get that sentence eradicated so that he wouldn't um, be put to death and she she fought and fought and she got all this attention and all this support and he still ended up getting the death penalty mm. um, and I think I was in when I first started writing that I was probably in like the eighth grade <laughs> um, <laughs> and then when I was in maybe the ninth grade I started sending it to publishers <laughs> it was like 20 pages long everybody was like who are you? Like, what is this? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I was like, somebody's going to publish this. Um, I'm sending it to, like, the top publishers in the country. And they're just like, we don't even accept solicitation. So why are you sending us your 20-page story about the death penalty? Um, but, yeah, I've always kind of had this urge to understand why some people are treated differently. I've always had this, like, passion for helping other people understand that. And I think just growing up the way you do, like when you grow up and you're, you grow up black, like you're, the talk for us is not the birds and the bees, it's the police, it's understanding who you are, understanding what you look like, your ice has to be colder, like you have to try harder, you have to be smarter just to get the same opportunities. So having that talk at a really young age with my my mom just kind of made me think like, well, why? Like... What if I don't want cold ice? Like, why does my ice have to be colder? That's that's not fair. Um, And it really just made me dive deeper into why things are the way they are. You know, so many other things I wanted to talk about here. But one thing I did want to get into is what we've seen and heard from the media in the last year Mm -hmm. when it comes to the story of the east side of Buffalo. Give me some of your impressions on this, because I'm I'm sure you have some deep thoughts. Yeah. I mean, okay, so last year, May 15th, I go out to Jefferson, and I saw more people on Jefferson than I've ever seen in my life. And most of them were people from the media all over the world. One conversation I will never forget is a journalist from a, a French publication came up to me, and he said, this is horrible that what's what's going on here. And I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> like, yeah. And he goes, so are you guys going to form a militia? And I'm just like, what? <laughs> mm. Huh? I was like, look around you. What, what do you see happening right now? I pointed to a lady and I said, what is she doing? And he was like, she's crying. She's holding, holding on to someone, hugging someone. And I turned somewhere else and I said, what is he doing? He's like, he's picking up trash. You know, people immediately started consoling each other and figuring out what they can do, whether it's come out with a garbage bag and pick up garbage or walk up to a group of people handing out food and say, do you need help? You know, people immediately started trying to figure out a way 
to uplift and support each other. And we had media, the media coming out and, and trying to build a different narrative, completely different from what they were actually seeing happening around them. Um, and then, of course, we knew that we'd only be a story for so long. You know, Uvalde happened, and, and most of the media here, they had to leave and go there. It was just a few days later. It was literally. a few days later. Um, so I think it's, it's sad that these stories are so fleeting, that it's like we're a news cycle. We're going to get a few news cycles, and then we got to move on to something else. What I can say is I do think that a lot of our local media, um, this station, um, and I, I won't name stations, no, but a lot fine. of our local media um, have been very respectful and have really taken the lead of the people that the community have identified as voices and leaders for us and really followed our lead. Like, what, what do you think we need to talk about? What do you think we need to report on? I have more relationships with journalists and reporters than I've ever had. And they'll just text me like, is there anything happening that we are not doing our due diligence at reporting on? So I really, really respect that. And I appreciate that. But for the ones that have just been treating May 14th like a story, and in some ways they've lost the humanity in it, they've lost the, fa- the fact that when you leave, we're still, we still have to be here. And they're not asking the, the hard questions. They're not asking the right questions, you know? A lot of news outlets made space for the president and the governor to say thoughts and prayers, but they didn't ask, what are you going to do? And they didn't keep asking, and they didn't put that pressure on them. Like, what are you going to do? This is your, these are your constituents. Like, your constituents have lost their lives. What are you going to do? Um... So I wish we would have seen more of that. I wish we would have seen more accountability. You know, it the story can't always... You need to hear from our voices. You need to hear from the community. But the same questions that we have, we need you to go hard asking those questions. When things were happening around May 14th that were impacting the city, like redistricting and things like that, we needed our local media to be like, hold on, <laughs> why do you think now is a good time to do this? What are you doing? Do you know that half your community is standing in line for a bag of food on Jefferson? Like, what is this? You know? So when it comes to the humanity of the community, I think a lot of media outlets have done a good job at at following our lead. But when it comes to asking the questions that led to this, asking the questions that made it easy for somebody to identify where all the black people are and really digging into the history of that, talking to Henry Louis Taylor and saying, like, how... In what ways was our community kind of designed for this, for this to happen? In what ways was this community a sitting duck waiting for this to happen? Um, Those are the questions that we need the media to really ask and ask with with intention. Ask like you are not going to stop asking until you get an answer Um, because we don't need any more thoughts and prayers. We don't need any more condolences, any more speeches. I don't want to hear any more politicians say, never again, this is the last time. How many times are you going to say that? How many last times can we have? So I I, I do want to see more pressure from the media on the people that can answer these questions and continue to give a platform to the people from the community 
that are speaking up for us and in the families that that want to talk and the families that don't like leave them alone you know don't don't pressure the families that don't want to talk um so luckily i have had these conversations with a lot of reporters um but i do think that playing using kid gloves on the politicians like we can't keep doing that you know i don't i don't need to hear joe biden say I'm so sorry. I don't want this to ever happen again anymore. I don't even care. I don't want to hear that. A lot of us don't want to hear that. Kathy Hoko, we don't want to hear that. You know, we want to know what you're going to do. And not just what you're going to do to make sure people eat while the grocery store is closed. But what are you going to do about the fact that they were starving on May 13th of 2022 and that they're still starving on May 15th of 2023? What are you going to do about that? So... That's what we need. Jillian Hainsworth, Buffalo Poet Laureate, with us here for another 10 minutes on Buffalo, What's Next? Very powerful, Jillian. Is that what you're hearing from your community? Is yeah. that you're hearing that very same? Yeah, a lot of people are like, we don't want any more thoughts and prayers. Like, we've been saying, hey, like, look what's happening over here for years. For years, we've been saying, it's, it's crazy that we only have one grocery store, like, Hey, do y'all see what's what's going on over here? Like, we've been saying that for for years, as long as I can remember. Um, and again, every issue that that we dealt with in the wake of five fourteen was an exacerbated issue that already existed. Right. None of it was new. So, in the fact that a lot of these that nothing's changed, the fact that nothing is different today. As far as legislation, as far as policy, city ordinance, as far as food access, like, it's still a food apartheid on the east side. And they're not even calling it that. They're calling it a food desert. It's not. So, yeah, that's that's very frustrating for a lot of people in the community. There's been a lot of talk about investing money, state money, um, maybe a little bit less on the local county level. Mm-hmm. In your again, I'm just hearing what you just said, so I, I assume I already know the answer that you're not there may be this talk about this money and it may be getting spent in some regard, but for you and for most people, there's no concrete it. proof of it. Yeah. There's no concrete proof and a lot of times I think they put the onus on nonprofit leaders, right? They say we're gonna put together this commission of nonprofit leaders from the east side. And we're going to let them determine how to disperse the money, how to how to spend the money. They're going to decide who to write the checks to. And even those people are sometimes very disconnected from the lady who sits on her porch on Landon every day and watch the kids get on and off the bus. You know what I mean? Like, even then, there's still a disconnect. So I'm not, I don't know what the best strategy is to make sure that the people on the ground, the people in the community feel the effects of this money. Um, I have ideas. I think land trusts, more land trusts, that's a, a valid way, like letting people feel ownership and have ownership. I don't know if I'll ever own a house in Buffalo. Like, I don't in general, but especially in my own in my own city because of how hard it is to, to own property, to even be able to find property that's that's worth buying. Right. Um so land trust, let the community have some ownership over the land. You know, let us 
make it easier for us to to build grocery stores. There are a lot of plots of land on the east side that are owned by people who don't live here, who've never lived here, who are sitting on it, waiting to sell it to a developer. That should not be okay. Like, that shouldn't be allowed. You should not be able to just own a plot of land on Thatcher Avenue that you're not going to do anything with. Like, it's not helpful to our community. Um, So I think figuring out ways to put the community, to give them some ownership over the land, um, more educational opportunities, um, workforce development. I know we have the Northland Workforce Center, but we need to expand workforce development. We need to start addressing poverty. Um, we need to start to start to usher our community out of this survival state where it's like, I just need to make sure I can put food on the table. I need to make sure I can pay my utilities. I need to make sure I can make that car note payment. And we need to move out of that. Um, but it's just so ingrained into the culture here in Buffalo when it comes to how black people have historically had to make their way here um, that I don't know the strategy, but I know that we have people who do know strategies. We have Henry Lewis Taylor. We have community organizers who are spending as much time as I do performing. They spend that same amount of time researching and strategizing. And those are the people that we need to hear from. Not just the people with the big titles or the people over the biggest organizations or the elected officials, like the people who the old lady calls when she doesn't have any groceries, the people who pays for the elders in their neighborhood to get their lawns mowed. Those are the people we need to talk to and figure out from your experience, what do we need? Where do we need to spend this money? Um, And I think we need a very detailed document of how this money is being spent we need to know and we, we we're owed that um because you can tell me all day i'm investing 50 million in the east side but when there is still a pothole right before a speed hump and then another one right after it when it's still kids that have to walk in the street because the sidewalks are cracked up when it's still kids who don't even have money to pay their school lunch like where's the money Next up, Mark Talley. In the few short days after the May 14th top shooting, Mark had to find a way to channel his pain and frustration he felt after the killing of his mother, Geraldine Talley. Besides starting a community activism group, Agents for Advocacy, Mark also chose to write a book to document the many feelings and experiences he endured since May 14th. I'm wondering with writing the book what that was like, because you know you mentioned that's been difficult to continue talking about that day and now you've written a book about that day what was the emotion like writing that no it was definitely tough you know you go through well for me personally I went through a whirlwind of emotions you know I always say you know I'm kind of a low emotion person and that still remains true but you know the emotions I went through at the time and jotting down these notes getting the book ready were not necessarily the good emotions I say not the not the love the sorrow uh, I went through you know, just the anger, um, rage, intensity, you know, just wanting to just, you know, punch a punch my fist into a wall, punch everybody who I saw that looked like the terrorists. Um, but, you know, I still, I've done my best to channel that all into a, into a healthy rage to just put it in, in my organization, in my book, to continue trying to help the community the best way I can. 
what's it like being able to tell your story and your mother's story in your own words through a book rather than necessarily doing interviews like this one or doing, you know, media appearances? It's been great because, you know, I've been able to talk uh, about everything that I wanted to talk about. And, you know, talking to all the, uh, you know, the local news stations, uh, the national stations, you know, you learn you learn pretty quickly that they will cut stuff that they don't want in there. Um, you know, especially ESPN, they may just uh, not even air what you said to them. But um, you know, with this book, uh, I'm able to say everything that I want to say. Uh, you know, some of it, you know, it definitely may get dark. Uh, some may, some parts may have humor in there that people necessarily doesn't. You know, they may not condone it. But I'm just able to speak my own words, uh, my own thoughts, put everything how I felt um, in the immediate aftermath following 514 up to now into the book. And I'm just speaking, speaking my piece. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, what you put in the book and um, what are some of the things that you were able to say in the book that maybe you haven't been able to say before? Uh, the book is based on uh, my mother and I's relationship. Uh, growing up, it dwells into my 20s when I had to deal with partial complex epilepsy in which I was having, you know, just a bunch of random random seizures, cluster seizures at that and, you know, was going through a number of um, just hard, painful emotions because I wasn't able to keep a job um, in the immediate aftermath following 514 and everything that I've done, experienced, had to deal with and everything I felt. And I was wondering if there's any um, excerpts or any parts of the book that you wanted to uh, share with us on air. Uh, absolutely. I would, um, yeah, I can, would love to share an excerpt from the book. I quickly paused the video, realizing that I already witnessed the shootings of 12 of the 13 people that were shot that day. I leaned forward, putting my elbows on my knees and holding my phone tight. My mom was the last person killed. I asked myself as my eyes darted around the room. My heart went from racing to pounding. I knew that when I pushed the play button again, the next person the killer was going to find was my mom. I sat on the couch in a semi-permanent state of shock. A part of me desperately needed to see my mom alive one more time. Unfortunately, I didn't have any videos of her to remind me of how she laughed when she saw something funny or sang while she baked cakes. I didn't have any phone messages from her to remind me of her voice and how she spoke. The only video record of my mom's existence, to my knowledge, was the one I was about to see, and I desperately needed to see her alive again. The other part of me was terrified to see her after watching the killer shoot so many victims in their heads. I mean, I knew my mom was about to be killed, but I just didn't want her to die in such a brutal way. Giant tears clouded my eyes as I reluctantly pushed the play button. The video resumed with the killer walking to the next aisle about to find my mom. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. And I know that one of the things I read online that you shared another excerpt excerpt from the book is talking about how you remember your mom now and how um, 
you have a lot of memories of her in your dreams. Can, can you talk a little bit about maybe the ways that you continue to remember your mom, you know, and, and I imagine it has to be difficult, like having all these beautiful memories of your mom and then having this really difficult last memory of your mom. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll always still, you know, cherish and love all the memories that I have with my mother. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, I know I won't be able able to make any new memories, but the ones that I have, you know, I'll cherish forever and definitely with the dreams I have too. Uh, you know, some of the dreams are funny. Uh, some are pointless. Uh, you know, some get real emotional. Um, you know, one dream I had, I was just walking around the whole city crying. I knew why I was crying, but it was hard for me to tell people why I was crying. And they just didn't understand what was the point of me crying. But, you know, I knew that my mother was dead in the dream, but people had no idea who she was or why I was crying. So it felt like I was just the only person lost in the city and a ton of emotions, but no one understood why. And when I woke up, you know, I still had all the emotions I had and felt in the dream, but uh, physically, you know, you wouldn't have known, um, you wouldn't have known that I was even crying earlier in my dream. What was it like having these dreams? Like when you wake up and reflect on them, like, do you think for you that dream spoke at all to any ways you've been feeling about how Buffalo is um, handled or responded to this? I feel like the, you know, those dreams are just, just my little slices of life, uh, you know, could connected me to my mother in some way. Uh, you know, my mother knew I was kind of the, you know, a very introverted person. Uh, you know, um, I really lacked or showed emotions that much. So, you know, in my dream, it's a, it's an excellent way for me to release those emotions that I don't, uh, you know, when I'm a when I'm alive and not dreaming. And when it comes to how the city of Buffalo has responded um, to everything, I mean, there's two different answers. On a micro level, I believe the community has definitely, uh, the east side has definitely um, connected a lot more. And, you know, not the, you know, not the downplay all the, you know, surrounding suburbs, uh, you know, the Williamsvilles, uh, Cheek the Wagas, East Aurora's, West Seneca's, East Amherst's, Amherst's, they have also, they've also helped as well. But um, I still don't think they grasped or understand still what happened. I mean, you know, they go over there, they go over there, do what they, do what they wanted to do to help out. But then they just go home and forget about it still. But it's a lot of positivity still with the people that's on Jefferson, with the people that's on the east side of Buffalo. You know, we're all trying to come together to spark or do some type of change. Now, on a macro level, um, I don't think nothing has changed. Uh, you know, east side of Buffalo is still, is still what it is after as it was prior. You know, unfortunately, it took a terrorist attack in for 10 people to be assassinated for the city to, you know, finally want to, you know, have conversations on what can be done. But those conversations have still been, are being had close to one year later. You know, I honestly feel, let's say if this wasn't Tops on Jefferson, let's say it's, um, let's say if this was Tops in Cheektowaga, or if it was Tops on, I believe the Tops by the University Station, I believe that's considered Amherst or Williamsville, 
But let's say if it was that tops or you know, let's say if it was the Lexington co-op on Elmwood. You know, I think a lot of a lot more change would have been done compared to the change that's still being talked about uh, with the tops on Jefferson and the community. And I know that you've done a lot of work as a young person to lead in your community. And I'd love to talk about that as well, because I think it's a great way to show that young people can take this lead. And I know you took the lead this year by creating your own nonprofit. Would you like to share a little bit about your journey working with those nonprofits to starting your own? Uh, It's been a surreal experience. Uh, You know, when I first started my nonprofit, Agents for Advocacy, in July, you know, I thought it would be you know, kind of just a grassroots type nonprofit, um, you know, just out on the streets, um, you know, doing small local stuff. And I never, you know, would imagine it would, you know, take off like a wildfire. Uh, in my wildest dreams, I didn't think it would be, you know, kind of as large as it is now, somewhat being on a national stage after being mentioned in Vice, uh, ABC, MSNBC, NBC, um, and with this, you know, our main goal is to try to bring about change. Uh, we want to bring more awareness on systemic racism and socioeconomic inequality so we can hopefully foster a reality in which one day uh, one's race, one's environment, you know, shouldn't dictate uh, one's future. And, you know, close to the past, you know, past year, we've either done or taken part in 30-plus events. We've worked with, uh, you know, Back to Basic Ministries, Pastor Giles, Western New York Peacemakers, Buffalo Fathers. Um, we've done events which were, you know, definitely sponsored. We got on radio at WBFO, uh, 93.7 Times Square Media. Uh, we worked with Roswell, United Healthcare, West Term, um, Erie County Medical Center, United Healthcare. Um, we're looking right now to work with uh, Aspire um, for an event we have coming up on August 5th. Our back-to-school drive, we're trying to make it like a one-stop shop center. Uh, we're doing this in conjunction as well with Epic. And Epic is, a, uh, you know, we definitely work with Epic, um, you know, a lot over the past few events that we've done. So it's definitely been, um, you know, very, very exciting. Um, you know, hopefully I named everybody that we work with because it's, it's been a lot of people. We have an event actually coming up on June 3rd with uh, Buffalo Community French. Uh, this is being sponsored by Tops and Tops. Uh, you know, they've definitely helped us out as well over the past year at a lot of our events. But for June 3rd, uh, that's my mother's birthday. Uh, they're going to be helping us uh, provide uh, free food, um, free breakfast food, uh, Buffalo Community Fridge. They're going to be getting fresh produce, fruits. Um, we're just going to hand it out to the residents in the community. And we're also going to be providing cop meals with, I believe, uh, food truck KT uh, Caribbean or Carabana from uh, Niagara Falls. I know that you've worked with not only so many organizations, but you've done a wide range of events. And I know you've done educational courses, job training, helping people with their resumes, um, adopting a refugee family for Christmas and making sure they had what they need. Um, I'd love to hear more about the wide range of things that you've worked on and how they've impacted the community. All right. We've, um, you know, we're doing 
our socioeconomic classes and our, you know, socioeconomic community events. Uh, regarding the events, we try to mainly focus on health, education, um, along with providing, uh, you know, the you know, food in the community that residents need. Uh, when it comes to our classes, uh, this is, you know, one of our main focuses and priority. Uh, our classes usually involve business, financial literacy, health, and we usually just try to teach, uh, teach the people who come to these classes, you know, things they're not necessarily taught in school or don't know about. You know, the majority of the people don't know about interest rates, APR, uh, cancer rates, mental illnesses, uh, STDs, uh, preventable illnesses. And when I say, uh, you know, they don't know, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, they don't know what a preventable illness is but they don't know necessarily why it's higher on one side compared to the other. And then that's when we get into, you know, the poverty cycle. And the east side of Buffalo, unfortunately, has become a poverty cycle with no help. You know, nobody's going to come save us. Uh, we have to save ourselves. You've done many different events and projects and worked with many different organizations. What needs have really um, become clear to you through this work that the community still needs that aren't being fulfilled? Once again, mainly health, um, education, housing. Uh, you know, once again, speaking, you know, we just talked about it, um, you know, somewhat roughly a few minutes ago, but health, you know, the east side highest, you know, the highest rates of, uh, you know, mental illnesses, STDs, cancer, uh, preventable illnesses and disease. When it comes to education, we have the worst, worst rates compared to other communities and cities. When it comes to housing, you know, you have, you have families that can't currently afford the rent that they're paying, and you're having slumlords or other companies buying property and raising the the rent that they can't currently pay now and raising it even higher. You know, I believe that uh I believe that the city would leave Jefferson how it is to fight for their own. But uh my views uh my views are eventually changing right now. I believe what's gonna happen is that uh, you know, unfortunately five fourteen made the uh Jefferson area, the east side a hot spot now. And that eventually this is going to speed up gentrification. And eventually, um, you know, once they keep raising the rates of everything over there, you know, people are going to have to be forced to leave. What do you think could be done to make sure that people can remain on the east side, remain in their communities and keep their businesses and families there? Nothing at all. I mean, um. You know, do I want to keep keep these families? Let's say if I, you know, if I own a block, I'm a development firm. I own a block. I have ten houses. The rent is currently fifteen hundred dollars. You know, do I want to do I want to keep this block with these families in it, making fifteen thousand, or do I want to raise the rent up to twenty five hundred dollars, kick them out, and have people that can pay this easily? So now I just went from having fifteen thousand to twenty five thousand. What do you believe should be done to support the current community and prevent that gentrification and prevent the focus from 
being just 10 or 20 years down the road? What are some things you'd really like to see done right now? Better education. Um, now, I was just recently on a panel with, uh, now I wish I could say his name, so I'm just going to have him, have to call him Dr. B, Jillian, uh, Nanette Massey, Catherine Roberts, and, um, and Ed, and also an anchor as well. You know, I forgot who said it, but one of them said it. You know, I believe Nanette Massey said it that, you know, the biggest thing we have to do is starts with education. And we definitely have to approve the education on the east side of Buffalo. We have it as of right now where just the, you know, the county controls everything. And I think it should be made where the, uh, where the district controls it. You know, I'm pretty sure, you know, the school board is doing a good job. I believe it could de- they could definitely be doing a lot better job. And I believe in order for education rates to increase, I mean, we have to make it more, we have to make it a lot more smaller so each district can control the schools in that district. And once again, we have some of the worst rates, so we have to do something regarding this. Um, we have to do something with some type of job training, some job program. Um, you know, once again, you go to the east side of Buffalo, if you see 10 10, um, if you see two black males, statistically speaking, one of them may not have a high school diploma. So things like this must be done, and it starts with education, and it starts with, and it starts with housing. And for our last highlight, Carl Shallowhorn, the director of youth programs for mental health advocates of Western New York, and now the host of the new WBFO program, Mindful Music, joined Buffalo What's Next to speak about the current state of the youth of Buffalo and the many stressors they may be facing. Well, I know, I know for myself, I've been working in the area of behavioral health and educating and advocating for a long time. And I think to myself, yeah, I sometimes ask myself, why do I do this? Well, I know I do what I do because I have to have hope, certainly for future generations. My, my day gig, as we say, is I'm the director of youth programs at Mental Health Advocates of West New York. I supervise a team of Young people, youth peer advocates that go into schools, they provide services to youth. And what I've learned through this experience is that our youth are hurting, our kids are hurting. They're traumatized like I certainly never could have imagined, and I'm sure you probably couldn't either. And it's just a matter of what they're being exposed to through all kinds of means. But you talk about going back to stuff like 514, we had our staff go into Bennett High School and performing arts. I remember vividly. They were going in. I had a special meeting of my staff. Okay, how are you going to handle this when you go on to meet with these students? And we had to make sure that when they went in, they had what we call like a trauma-informed approach. So they understood where the students were coming. But in the same respect, there are a lot of young people, students that didn't want to leave home. And deservedly, rightly so, they didn't want to go anywhere because they were afraid. So my team goes in and works with youth on a lot of levels to educate, to help them manage and understand their mental health so they can withstand the the stress and the pressure associated with growing up in this day and age. There's a lot to unpack there. Oh, totally. <laughs> because not only do we have this this outlier event, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to think it's still an outlier. I know the, the frequency of, of mass shootings has increased dramatically, but it's still, in my mind, an outlier. We want it to be and remain an outlier despite its its abundance in our in our day-to-day. 
But you add to that just the struggles of being a child, being a, a being an adolescent, growing up, being a minority in today's society. Then everything else. This generation now is going to have such an, an abundance of stress and trauma, and they haven't even hit 18 mm-hmm. yet. The pandemic, uh, quarantine, uh, schooling. Um, where are the mental wins for children? What are the places where we can reinforce or, or supplement positively, given all these other factors that are just bearing down on them? The expression that comes to mind, it takes a village to raise a child. So there are a lot of people in a lot of different sectors of our community that are doing the work. We have schools certainly are doing things that they never done before, whether it be providing youth mental first aid training. We've been doing it. We just offered youth mental first aid training for Niagara Falls schools. It teaches the teachers and, and staff how to respond and know what to do uh, and help a student. There are behavioral providers, community-based providers going into schools, providing on-site help to, because let me just say this too, Lorenzo, back when I was a student, back in the day, we had, they called guidance counselors. They're not even called that anymore because really they provide different resources and information that traditional counseling is not, that's not really what they do much. They, mind you, they might provide that help, but they're not the ones that are primarily, I would say, at least in, in some cases, not the front line. Mind you, they, it's where they utilize the services that are coming in from, say, everywhere from Best Self, Horizon, Endeavor, Spectrum, you know, all these providers coming in to help. We also have other sports. There is Connect, which is a local community-based organization. Um, you know, uh, Jessica Bauer-Walker, is, it's a community-based approach to student wellness. We have other organizations, PTOs. We have Girl Scouts. We're going to be doing training for Girl Scouts. We have a lot of work with the uh, youth mental peer advocates, rather, will be doing this summer. Uh, Cradle Beach will be working with uh, you know, the Girls Sports Foundation. A lot of organizations where we come into and provide information for these young people to help them develop resilience, to help them be educated. And also a cool thing we're doing, and I'm going to give a little plug for something that's going to be coming down the road, is the MHA is in the process of developing a warm text line for you. Ah. So we know there's crisis lines, mm-hmm. they're 988. So if anybody is at risk of their life in terms of taking the life or suicide, 988. We'll be providing information, we're working, developing this right now where a youth, say 12 to 18 roughly we're saying, can text this number, not call, text, because mm-hmm. that's the you know how youth do these things these days, to reach someone to communicate if they need someone to say, not necessarily in a crisis situation, but needs someone to connect with. Because many times we know that youth may not feel comfortable going to even their friend or family member or teacher. They might want to talk to someone, but they might want to reach out to someone if it's a peer. That's also another thing, too. I mean, my YPAs are 18. You could be 18 to 30. You're younger. I couldn't pull it off. I decided a long time ago, I'm not that person to go and talk to a group of high school students or even younger because that's just not my generation. They don't look at me the same as someone like that. Carl, you're not that you're not that far older than I am or far well, removed because there were guidance counselors when I was growing up. Y- you don't know how old I am. <laughs> I, my, <laughs> no, but I, I, I love that because Generation Z is a lot to figure out. I'm a, I'm I'm I guess what I'm called a uh, 
geriatric millennial, <laughs> that, that very flattering term. Uh, so even I can't, there's a whole lot to just try to understand from Generation Z and, and beyond, whatever comes next. I want to also give a shout out to, I'm the vice chair of the Mental Health Association of New York State. We're a statewide board. We are the, well, it's the state, Mahaney's, as is otherwise known as, is the state affiliate for MHA, where I work, part of the Mental Health America Network. Mahaney's, we helped introduce legislation, the first in the country, for mental education law, to law to be placed so that students' grades, grades kindergarten through 12, are taught mental health in schools, first in the country. And this was in 2017. Um, and other states have followed. I know Virginia is another state that does it and, and a few others. But this should be in every state. It shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a you know, you can do it if you want to. Right. It should be required. And there isn't enough of that. And I think what we've learned is, so Mahaney's has been fortunately able to get funding to create, it's called the School Education Resource Center, which is a free service for schools to get resources, information. They have webinars for teachers, families, all kinds of things to help support students in a way that was never done before. It's, this is the inspiring part. This is the, the positives that I, I, I say earlier you have to look for. I, first off, I, I give you a great deal of respect and credit because uh, one of the things I found out in my research, uh, you struggle with bipolar disorder. My father did as well, mm. does still uh, do so. And his generation is one, he's an 80-year-old man mm. from Cuba, mm. uh, also the Hispanic culture. Uh, it's not, it's not a, a machismo thing to, to get into your feelings as the, as the, as the generation Z kids right. say. Uh, but it's, it's so important, so imperative. I want to get into the, into a little bit about the nuances to mental health in, in minority population, but we don't do enough to open up the, the lines of communication when it comes to mental health. And it's amazing. And like I mentioned empowering and uplifting that you're doing this work with with the youth because i didn't i always said that it couldn't get worse than columbine that was mm. the big one mm. in my lifetime as a student and now these kids are, are are dealing with this on a almost listen monthly basis listen lorenzo a week after 514 we had uvalde mm-hmm. oh my god i'm getting chills right now i cannot 10 days the, after I, I can't i still can't get over what that must have been like. I, it, I'm speechless almost when I think about how our youth these days are being said, okay, um, we're going to be having a lockdown drill. Mm-hmm. You're already setting up in their minds. This fight or flight. Right. Constantly. Right. And that's not healthy. And you're kind of, kind of creating this sense of hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I remember once my daughter, my younger daughter was at school, and I think actually it was she, was, she wasn't at school at the time. I think she had already come home, but there was a bomb threat. And of course, my wife and I freaked out. But luckily, she was okay. But I think about these days where, and of course, right around a certain time, I think when um, uh, one of the recent mass <laughs> shootings, unfortunately, there were some copycat calls to mm-hmm. districts. It's, it's, just, it's just unfathomable how... These things are happening to our children that it does affect them. It does affect their development. It does affect how they see the world. 
So if you're in a world where you're under constant threat or you feel that you can't go to school without being safe, what does that what does it do for your well-being? And how well can you learn? Right. How well can you perform? How well can you do anything? I want to just emphasize, though, because I come from a 12-step philosophy. I belong to a 12-step program. And the, one of the things we say is we live in the solution, not the problem. So that's mm -hmm. why the work that's being done in the schools by the behavioral health providers, by MOIPAs, by the community-based organizations that are working with our children, Urban League, all these others that are doing this great work to support our youth, that's, that is the future, and that is what we need to invest in. We had Governor Hochul just throw us $5 billion. And I say throw us she, in, a, in a great way. It's a great, phenomenal thing. What are we going to do with the money? the money? And the schools mm -hmm. are getting some of that, but it needs to be used wisely. And we talk about appropriations and where it's going to go. We need to make sure that it's being accounted for. We need to make sure that people are following the, the, the money to know that, hey, we're using this in a way that's constructive, productive, and it's going to do what's intended. And I do, I do believe the governor is – she is certainly – Right on. I think the idea of investing in mental health is so important. It's, it's incredible. I just think, though, as an advocate myself, especially working with Mahaney's, one thing I've learned in my 10 years with the organization is that you have to stay in front of people. You have to keep at them. You have to keep at the legislators. Can I give you a quick antidote? Sure. So we, I took my team of youth for advocates to Albany for the Mahaney's Mental Health Matters Day. There was eight of us all together. We paired up and went to visit legislative aides. So we went to, I'll just say, uh, one of my team members, Renat and I, we went to see a couple of the aides from um, uh, Crystal Peace Stokes and Tim Kennedy. Some others went to others. So to the YPAs, as they're called, went to Patrick Gallivan's office. One of the things as advocates we were pushing for was an 8.5% cost of living adjustment for healthcare workers in the behavioral health field. Mm -hmm. Didn't get that. But as a result of the YPAs going and advocating before the budget was passed, Senator Gallivan signed a letter in favor of this 8.5% cost of living adjustment and stated specifically is because of the visit from Josh Chulo and Jim McDowell, the two YPAs have visited and talked to his aide. That, that basically, that's why he, I saw how it was brought to his attention. This is important. He, notice, he believed that because these two young people advocated. And I stress them all the time, anybody can be an advocate. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that people think, well, what can I do? Well, you can write a letter. You can talk to your legislator. You can make noise. Because if you think about it, uh, certainly uh, it, it's been said, yeah, just make, make good trouble. Good trouble. And, and that's what we're doing. We're trying to make good trouble with with the idea of getting the word out to people and letting them know that these these legislators, these these people in power, that, hey, we're not just going to just let you do things. We're democratic. We're, we're supposed to be a democratic society. It's supposed to be bottom up, not top down. Mm -hmm. At least that's the time. That's, you know, but we're, that's what we're, I was told. Yeah, that's what I was told. That's how I grew But people, people, I think, question that. So, but I think, for instance, the mental health education law, that's how that happened. People made a lot of noise, letters, emails, all that. So the more we do that, that's how you affect change because we realize that those who are, say, trying to remain where they are have to listen to their constituents. 
And so if you are, of course, my area is behavioral health. So that's why we are always trying to use what we do as a focal point to try to impress upon the leaders on policy and all those things that make a difference. One of the big terms now has, in recent years has been implicit bias. I mean, all these, all these fancy terms, but really it comes down to discrimination. It comes down to uh, you know, mistreatment of others. It comes down to simple lack of opportunity. A lot of things have happened over the years which have provided for a sense of inequity. And you know, one of my recent guests was uh, Pastor George Nicholas. That'll be coming up, uh, you know. But um, uh, Pastor George Nicholas talked a lot about this this idea of equity. How it, it's just it isn't present. It isn't there in the way that perhaps uh, we could really try to live up to be. And I think it's going to take really. It, it, so I get back to your first question. I don't think it's going to divorce. You could say because you can't. You can't erase the past, right? right? And Even I think though lot, some are trying to. Well, I would say that a lot of people are trying to do that right now. And that is, that's a big part of the issue right now. And I'll just say, frankly, I think a lot of people are just afraid of losing control. We thank you for joining us. This has been Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. We also would like to thank all of our guests, Jillian Hainsworth, Mark Talley, and Carl Shallowhorn. As a reminder, Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 to 11 and gets re-aired each night at 9 p.m. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts or the Amplify BTPM app, as well as on demand at WBFO.org. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Buffalo What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.